from the quarry. Fantastic. Well, good morning, everybody. We are in the third week of our series entitled Dying for Change that we began on Easter morning, and this is the final message this morning. We've been talking about change and that Jesus died to open up the doors of possibility for us to have in our life real change. And that can be good news to most of us who find that we are in a place in life where we need change, good change, positive change, or we might, walking through, we might be walking through in life, change all around us in the midst of it. We need the power of God to be in our lives, to, to, to make it through to the other side. And we started to talk on Easter about the reality that when it comes to us needing change, the first step for us is to embrace the reality of who we are. And in that, I don't have very, I don't have very good news for you, because according to the Bible, you are every bit as bad as you feared. I mean, you are just pathetic wretches, and I am too. And so we began on Easter, the real pick-me-up. We are every bit as bad as we thought we were. But the good news in Jesus is that God's love is so great for us that allows us to go ahead and admit that and to embrace that. And that is actually the first step to real-life change, to real spiritual transformation, deceiving ourselves to thinking we're better than we rightfully are or to trying to say to ourselves, well, we're not that bad or I'm pretty good or compared to my coworkers, I think I'm really outstanding. There's no need for us to deceive ourselves or to lie to ourselves. We are allowed to say, nope. When it comes to righteousness and spirituality and getting my act together, I am a wretch. And when we embrace that, that's when, like our Easter story, it's in that moment when we are dead, dead. Think about Jesus, dead in that tomb, and it is only through death that you get to resurrection. Resurrection requires death. And so you've got Jesus lying in the tomb, and that's when the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit is able to say to the dead body of Jesus, it is now time to get up. It is time to wake up. And when Jesus comes back to life, it isn't just any kind of life. He doesn't just pick up from where he left off. It is resurrection kind of life. It is a qualitatively different kind of life than what he laid down three days earlier. And the good news for us is that same spirit that said to Jesus, it is now time to wake up, is the exact same spirit that is in us that allows whatever dead places there are in our life to all of a sudden find new life. And not just any life, but resurrection life. Amen? Let's go home. No, I'm just kidding. I got more. There's more. There's more. Okay. Whew. All right. So in that, what we decide is to enable to take this next step in terms of transformation is to embrace our deadness to let the Spirit of God work on our life. But as we talked last week then, there are actually steps and as we cooperate with the Spirit of God to see spiritual transformation, that that's what we want. We want to be transformed spiritually. So let me offer to you a definition of spiritual formation we talked about. This is what we're talking about and what we're leading towards. We want a Spirit-driven process, which means it's not, on my own, not by my effort alone. I don't even instigate this process but it's the Spirit of God that drives this process in which it forms our inner world. The being of you, your inner being is transformed, your spiritual side, in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ Himself. And what this means is you are being transformed to look like the inner being of Jesus. And that's why it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're married, whether you have kids, if your life looks technically nothing like Jesus, that He was single and wore flip-flops all the time, what it means is whatever his inner being is possible for you so that we always want to respond like Jesus does. We want to think like Jesus does. We want to talk to people like Jesus does. And we want that to be for us routine and easy. 
We want that to take place in our life where we so routinely act like Jesus and where we so easily respond like Jesus would, it would feel awkward to us not to respond like Jesus. Could you imagine being at a place in regards to spiritual growth that your inner being is so much like the inner being of Jesus that you just naturally respond like he does? And See, that's our challenge in spiritual transformation, right? We want to be whatever Jesus' inner being is. That's what we want for us. And in that, the good news is we really can engage in a process that allows that transformation to take place. And it's not, I'm telling you, Christians get weird. They get all mystical and ethereal and ooh, it gets all nobody. And that's not the way Jesus is at all. I mean, he gives us some very specific, practical teachings that will lead us into a real engagement on how to be this and change to that. And so anything in your life that you want transformation in, any personal transformation, you will need three things. That's what we talked about last week. You'll need three things. One is vision, the second is intention, and the third is means. If you forget along the way, just look up here. It's right up here. Vision, intention, and means. And so we started to talk about this last week in regards to like anything else in our life. If you want to learn French, let's say you don't speak any other languages but English and you want to learn French, in order to do that, you need three things, vision, intention, and means. You need to have a vision for what your life will look like once you learn French. Like you need a vision for your life and how it will be qualitatively different and better by investing the time and energy required to learn the French language. And this is why all around the world people are learning English in droves, right? Because all around the world they catch a vision for when you learn the English language it opens up doors of education and opportunity and business and so people all around the world will learn English. See, but for here in America the percentage of people who learn French is not very great and do you know why? There's not a large vision for what will do. If you're thinking, someday I'd like to go to France and spend a week there, if that's your totality of vision, it probably will not drive you and catapult you into learning the French language. So the first thing you need is to have a vision for what that will look like. But the second is intention. What that means is you must make a decision. You must decide to intend to learn French because learning French will not happen by accident. It will not happen by happenstance. It will not just sort of overtake you. No one wakes up in the morning and says to themselves, well, I wonder if I'm going to learn French today. It doesn't work like that, right? Nobody wakes up and goes, I wonder if I'm going to get married today. I, want, I mean, it doesn't work like that in any area of our life. And I find people wake up every day wondering, I wonder if I'm going to grow spiritually. And my answer is, if you do not intend to grow spiritually today, you will not grow spiritually today. We know this in every other area of our life is to be true, but when it comes to the spiritual life, for some reason we just think it's just going to come out of nowhere and all of a sudden we've grown spiritually. And the truth is, if you do not have vision for spiritual growth or intention to grow spiritually, it will not catch you by surprise. The last thing you need, number three, is means. So if you're wanting to learn the French language, it's not enough just to have a vision for it or even an intention for it. You now need means. And here are some things that would be the means of learning the French language, like taking classes that teach you French, right? Maybe listening to some podcasts or buying that Rosetta Stone thing that they keep advertising. It's like a miracle language device that will help you speak Portuguese in like two weeks. And I mean... Buying one of those things, listening to podcasts, buying books that will teach you French. Maybe hanging out with people who speak French. Maybe traveling to Quebec and hanging out there for a month. Maybe immersing yourself in the culture. Whatever it is, those become the means by which you learn French. And we can apply this to any area of life in which we need transformation. From sobriety to weight loss, amen, to... You see what I'm saying? So that's what we talked about last week. And then we began with talking about the vision aspect of these three things. And if you follow after the person of Jesus, your vision will be the kingdom of God. 
It will be the reign and rule of God. What God wants to happen, happens. And so that we are captured by a vision that Jesus gives to us and invites us into where we want to happen in our lives, what, Jesus, what, what God wants to happen in our lives. And just think about that for a moment, that whatever your marriage is supposed to look like, that's what happens according to what God wants in your marriage happens. That in terms of your parenting, what God, ha- what God wants to happen, happens. And so we're so captivated by following the person of Jesus. And so we talked about even our behavior will always betray us. You could say you think something, and you could say you believe something, but in the end, our behavior will always betray what we really think and what we really feel. And it goes back to even questions like this. Who is the smartest person who has ever lived in the history of the world? See, the answer is Jesus. Really? Because, I mean, Einstein, he's up there. No, I mean, Jesus could change the molecular structure of water and turn it into wine. Isn't that amazing? He could take H2O and he could transform it. He is so smart, he knows exactly where that school of fish is swimming. He can tell his disciples. He is so smart, he knows how on a very molecular level to divide bread and fish. There's nobody as smart as Jesus. And if you really believe that, you will listen to Jesus more so than anyone else in your life. Because we listen to who it is that we think is the smartest person. And so for some, you think you're smarter than Jesus. It's true. Your behavior betrays you. Because Jesus has told you very specific things about your relationships and about your life, and you just think you're the exception and kind of moving on. And so behavior ultimately betrays it. Let me ask you this. Who do you think is the most powerful person in the world? I mean, Jesus could speak to disease, and with a word, it's just gone. Who could do that? Who has ever been able to do that? He could speak to a storm that's just going crazy. He could say, it is time to shut up, and then the storm has to obey. I mean, he is so powerful. And then third, we made up the English version of the goodest. <laughs> if I had to go back, I'd start over with English. Who is, who is the one who is most good and most loving in the history of the world? See, if your answer to those three questions is Jesus, that he is by far the smartest, the most powerful, and he is the goodest, the most good and loving person, let's see, I've the most good and loving person in the history of the world, you'll listen to him and you'll follow him in his vision of what it should look like for you in terms of life. And when that vision captures you, you are on your way towards spiritual transformation. But you need two more elements. You need intention and you need means. So that's where we're headed this morning. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Here we go. Thank you. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, for physical training is of some value, right? We're not down on physical training. If you go out and exercise, you go to the gym, you're running to the 10K, that's right on. That's fantastic. And you should commit whatever time is necessary to do that sort of physical training. But as you do, if you're going to follow after Jesus, you need to know this. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And in this metaphor, Paul gives us what he hints to is there are actual training exercises that we can adopt that help us grow into godliness. It's just like if you were doing physical training. There are exercises that you could do to help you grow physically. There are also spiritual exercises that we can enter into by way of training that will help us grow spiritually. So with that, let me say first this. It is, this is about intention now, we're talking about number two, intention. It is possible because of Jesus to intend to live in the kingdom as he did. Now, this is important. I know this seems simple. You're probably thinking, what are you paying this guy for? I mean, but think about this for a moment. Let this sink deep down into your heart so you get this. It is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross for us now to intend to live in the kingdom as he did. It's to live in the kingdom as he did because if your view of Jesus is so, ex- so out there, to, oh, he's the son of God and he was perfect, blah, 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 your life can ever be like his life in any way. You will immediately dismiss him as your pattern and as your standard by which you want to live life. Don't do that. 
Because what Jesus did on the cross, it opens the door for us to actually be able to intend to live in the kingdom of God. And this is important because there are other things that you know in our life, we can have all the intention in the world. It's just not going to happen, right? I, I can intend all I want, but the truth is I will never be in line for the succession of the British monarchy. Right? It's just not going to happen, right? Wrong family name. Wrong place of origin, birth. I mean, I just, no, I can intend, I'm going to be the king of England. So, well, I mean, it's just not going to, ha- no matter how I intend. Not so a spiritual growth. If you intend to live like Jesus in his kingdom, it is possible to live like, there are other things too, right? I will never be, no matter how much I intend, the starting center for the Orlando Magic. Just won't happen, right? A little height challenge here. It doesn't matter how much I intend, I will never be an underwear model. It's just not going to happen. No resistance at all. You notice that? <laughs> Nobody going, really? Because I would have pegged you as an underwear model. <laughs> all right, everybody collectively. We just kind of do this for a moment. Get that image out of your head okay, so we can move on. See, but Jesus actually opens the door for us to follow him. We actually get an invitation from Jesus to actually realize in our lives the kingdom of God. And so even this morning, it is available to you. And if you intend it, you can have it. If you intend to be in the kingdom and live in the kingdom as he does, you can have it this morning. We can actually decide to do it. And so you might ask, well, then how do, how do you do this? How do you bring about this intention? This is it. By intending to obey the precise example and teachings of Jesus. If you want to intend to live like Jesus, then this is how it will happen. We will intend then to obey the precise example and teachings of Jesus. And the good news for us in that this morning is they're not ambiguous. Come with, hang with me for a moment because Christians tend to make everything so complicated and so convoluted and so, and they're, it's just not. You can actually take, and for some of your Bibles it's even in red so you can see it right there. You could take literal statements of Jesus and you can understand them. And you can meditate on them and begin to apply in your own life. How do I then live out this precise both example and teaching so that we aren't walking around going, I don't know what that means. I mean, I'm just so confused. Let me give you an example. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He's just quoting right right out of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. But here's the teaching of Jesus for you then that we need to figure out if we're actually going to live kingdom lives. He goes on to say this, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And see, this you could study the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in originally, Greek. You could study Greek for years and years and years, and when you're done and you come out, do you know what this will say? It will say this, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. It's not confusing. There's no real gray area. We get, for be a kingdom person like Jesus, we will have to do something with anger. So if you're going to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God, you can no longer be an angry person, which, is, which we need to hear because in the church, there's a lot of angry people. Have you noticed that? they got angry people. But if we're going to follow after Jesus, then our anger will no longer be the thing that drives us, and we'll no longer be able to respond to people out of our anger. And imagine what that will look like when we will learn to no longer be a walking time bomb set off by who knows what, and everyone around you is just nervous for a don't upset so-and-so because they'll blow up. And all of a sudden, when we follow after Jesus, we begin to catch a vision for what life is like when it is free from anger. Because we're now meditating on the life of Jesus. 
And we might even be able to contrast that by way of vision of what a life looks like when it is controlled by anger. And we could go, yeah, that looks like my life. I mean, listen, I'm talking to myself here too, okay? This is not a preacher to you. And listen, I'm talking, I'm right here with you in terms of figuring out how not to let anger control me because I want to confess Jesus as Lord and move into the kingdom with him. It allows us then to ask questions like, what triggers anger in me? Like really, when I look at the episodes of anger in my life, what were the things that set that off, that triggered that? It allows me then to ask, why is it that I think that triggered my anger? Do I think that I'm owed something? Do I think this is some issue of, well, they don't know who I am and what I, I am? Mean, do you get what I'm saying? In the end, does it come back to an inflated view of myself and what I think I deserve and how I think I ought to be treated, even if it means that other people get treated less than? It leads me to ask questions, what ultimately do I think I'm going to accomplish by these angry episodes? And it prepares me, even to think through, if anger is an issue, to rethink how I respond in the moment of offense. See, if you're just kind of going along with life, then you'll never think about these things. And when you get angry, you get angry and you explode. But when you're following after Jesus, he will help us to begin to think through. So the next time I get offended, when I think somebody has wronged me, instead of choosing the path of anger, what will I choose? And I could so think about and so premeditate my new response that instead of blowing up in anger, I can respond routinely and easily like Jesus. And I want to take up the training that is necessary that I don't have those angry outbursts, but rather I have prepared myself through equipping and training and discipline that the next time somebody offends me or sins against me, and I don't mean like make-believe, like really does sin against me, I can respond like Jesus. And those things don't usually happen on the spot. It happens with preparation and intention behind it. I would like to ask, then why was Jesus always in control of his emotions? And Jesus got angry, Right? But he was never driven by his anger. And what does that mean for my life? And when I feel anger coming on, how do I take it captive, this thought and this emotion, and how do I redirect it, either to Scripture or to prayer or to Jesus himself? But my experience is most people who are angry never give any anger consideration or examination in Jesus. In fact, I hear them say, well, that's just, you know, that's just how I am. I'm sorry, I blew up. You know, I'm, I'm hot-headed. You know, we kind of dismiss it and roll our eyes, and, you know, we should all just go on. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it's time for radical personal transformation, for real spiritual transformation so that you aren't that kind of person anymore. And we can actually intend to not be angry persons anymore because of Jesus. And you can fill in the blank. Anger is just one of me. Jesus has lots of different teachings. And then in that, we want to adopt the means necessary, the training necessary to deal with anger. And so when we intend to obey the precise example and teachings of Jesus, we do so because our confidence is in him. We think he's the smartest. He is the most powerful. There is no one who is as good and loving as Jesus. And those things allows us to put our confidence in him. We trust him, right? That's different than we know things about Jesus. Like, you can have all the vacation Bible school answers about Jesus. You know, oh, the answer is Jesus. But when we actually put our trust and confidence in Jesus, it's not about what we know about him, but we know him, and that changes everything. Dallas Willard wrote it like this. He said, the idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving Christian culture. In fact, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him then you could trust your doctor or your auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. If you don't intend to follow their advice, you simply don't trust them. And like we know that truth be true, right? When the doctor says, well, this is what's happening, this is what you need, we trust our doctor, and so we take their advice. If you don't, it means you don't really trust your doctor. So, and so we kind of step over to the spiritual life with Jesus, and somehow there's not different rules. It's the same thing. And intention for us will mean decision. And I know this is simple too. 
Intention involves decision. You're going to have to decide. I mean, like, like every one of us will have to make that choice for ourselves. We will have to decide whether it is we intend to live in the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus. And as you do make those decisions and those intentions, there are sometimes things that hinder us in our intentions. Things like external circumstances, sometimes habits deeply rooted in our bodies and life context. And you'll just be true to other places, right? Let's go to weight loss for a moment. Just for a moment. We're moving right on because I don't want to get too personal, right? Because it's about me too. I might have a vision for weight loss. I might even intend to lose weight. But if in the cabinet past 7 p.m. is that host of Twinkies and all those other things, right? Those deeply rooted habits that are going on in my body so sabotage me. See, the same things can happen to us in the spiritual life as well. So in this, you need to know this. This is as far as I can bring you along the path of intention. As a pastor and even as a church, I can help you with vision and I can even help you with means. But I have absolutely no control and neither does the church in regards to your intention or decision to follow after Jesus. This will be up to you. This is the one equation out of these three where no one else has any say. It is purely up to you. But I'd love to offer for you this vision and this idea that you can live your life with single-minded devotion and dedication to please God in all of your thoughts and actions. Just imagine what that would change for you if you left here this morning and you intended, you decided that you wanted to please God in all of your thoughts and actions. See, if that grips your heart and that becomes the decision of your life, it will change everything. Let me just say what Jesus said. John chapter 14, this is what he says in verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Is that confusing to anybody? We all got that on the same page? And a few more verses in verse 21, he'll say this. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, not that one, the other Judas, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us but not to the world? To which Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we, and just think about this word, and we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Okay, that's intention. You'll, you'll have to do that. Yourself. Let's talk about the means for spiritual transformation. And means, like we mentioned, are very important. If you do not have the means, then it doesn't matter what your intention is or even what your vision is, you cannot carry this out. And so we learn very quickly uh, that there is available to us in spiritual transformation a rich history of means to help us on this spiritual journey of transformation. And we learn that we cannot just do what we want to do by trying, but with enough training and discipline, we can finally become the kind of people that we want to with effort and thought. Let me give you other illustrations. How many of you run the sunburst this year? Anyone go and run the sunburst this year? Anyone? Nobody? There's more in the first service, so you 11, 30 years, you're like sleeping in, not exercising, not... Okay. This is a huge hypothetical. I'm not running a marathon because I have no desire to run a marathon, but let's just pretend for a moment that I, Sam Barrington, would like to run a marathon. I can have a vision for that, and I can have intention for that, but I need to have means. And so means would be things like this. I can't run 26.2 miles in flip-flops, can I? 
So I have to have shoes that are appropriate to the task of running a marathon. Shoes are a means by which we run a marathon. Not only that, it would not do me any good to be in jeans and a parka running a marathon, 26.2 miles. So I need to buy appropriate clothing and shorts and, and whatever shirt you're supposed to wear. I don't know, whatever. Okay, you get what I'm saying? And so that very first day that I'm out, I, can I run 26.2 miles that first day? No. So what does Sam do? He uh, puts down the Twinkie and he, ri- and he runs uh, maybe a half a block. And then... <laughs> Right? But he tries not to be discouraged, and so the next day he intends to do it again, and this time he feels better, and then he runs a little bit further, and it's a whole block, and then it's around two or three blocks, the next thing you know, he's at a mile, then he's at three miles, he's at seven miles, and the next thing you know, he has trained and disciplined himself by taking little actions of growth that allow me to do now what I want to do in the future that I cannot do yet by direct effort. Is that confusing to you? That's why it should work. And you probably, you know, Karate Kid is being remade, came out again, it's coming back out, did you see the... the who saw the first Karate Kid? Oh, see, there's no way this new one's going to be as good as the old one. The 1980 Ralph Macchio version of Karate Kid is awesome. But you know what this is like? If you'll remember the movie Karate Kid, remember where uh, Danielson is there with Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi's trying to train him in karate? And so the first day he shows up, and he gives him a bunch of paint and says, you need to paint the fence, right? He gives very specific strokes. You got to do it like this. And so Danielson's like, mm, whatever. And so he does it and kind of exhausted and tired. Comes back the next day, ready for karate, right? But I don't know what that was about. Maybe it was paying for my lessons, but whatever. Let's get on, with the, get on the show. And so next thing you know, he's got he's to do the wax on wax. He's got to wax all the cars. And so uh, Mr. Brown has all these cars going down, and he's got to wax them all. And he's exhausted, and he's tired. This is just ridiculous. Finally, the third day, he shows up ready for, the real, for real karate lessons. And Mr. Miyagi says, you need to sand the deck, right? He's got the floor, he's sanding the deck. By the end of that, Danielson is so upset, he's so angry, he's so frustrated, he has no idea what all this is about, and he's going to quit, right? He's going to quit. And so he's there with Mr. Miyagi just complaining and, rah, 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 you know, I can't believe you let me do that. And so Mr. Mr. Miyagi finally gets his attention and says, okay, show me wax on. And does this, and he throws a punch at him, right? He does that sort of thing. Unbeknownst to Danielson, he was learning karate the whole time. In fact, he was learning how to do karate the whole time by repeated, repeated training, repeated discipline, so that in the end, what comes naturally will be routine and easy. Gary, does it work like that? It works like this. That time of discipline and training in the moment doesn't feel like, but there are little exercises we do now so we could train ourselves, because Daniel said if he just walked into the big karate match at the end, I mean, he's, gonna, he's never going to get to this, right? I mean, that's, just, that's not going to come naturally for him. But if you hang out with Mr. Miyagi and do all that training, you can get it. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8. This is that training of godliness that we can move forward in. A discipline is any activity within our power. Like we can actually do this that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. And when we enter into these disciplines, they begin to deal with those ingrained habits that are sabotaging our intention to be like Jesus. And in this, there is good news. I have for you this morning thousands of years of history and testimony that can lead us in to some of these means of spiritual transformation and growth. Would you like to hear them? Here they are. First, I would say what you're doing this morning is helpful. I think going to church is a training and a discipline that you take up that will lead you into spiritual transformation. Now, like we said last week, if this is all that you do, it is very doubtful that you will really grow and mature in Christ's likeness. In fact, most people in the church don't have a vision for kingdom living. They have a vision for going to church. And if that's your vision, it's a too short of a vision for Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus, he'll give you a much bigger. See, with the vision of going to church, you'll come and put your time in. Then you'll go get in your cars, you'll take off, and you won't look anything like Jesus. Because you don't have a vision to look like Jesus. You've got a vision to go to church. Those are two totally different things. 
And so in going to church, we catch a bigger vision for the kingdom of God through worship and through preaching, and those are good things that help us in the journey. But if you ever come across a guy named Richard Foster in his book called Celebration of Disciplines, you should buy it. It'll be worth every penny. Celebration of Disciplines, Richard Foster. It is a classic, in my opinion, the best book ever written that just explains and defines the spiritual disciplines that we can take up to grow in Christ's likeness. And he breaks them down into three categories. Let, let me share them with you. First category is what he calls the inward disciplines. They are things like meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. So here's the deal. If you wake up and you have no intention to grow spiritually, then by the end of the day, most likely you will have not grown spiritually at all. But if you wake up today and intend to spend about 15 minutes of meditation in doing so, there is a possibility you will have grown, even just a little bit, prepared yourself for spiritual growth. That what we discover throughout the, the life of Jesus and throughout scriptures is that for thousands of years, God's people, when they meditate on his very words through the scripture, are transformed. And so you've got King David, when he writes his psalms, he talks about meditating on the scriptures day and night, that as he lays on his bed, he meditates on the precepts and the laws of God. What's he doing? He's med he's, now, some of you are like, you're trying to read the Bible in a year, which is fantastic. That's great. But that's like reading chapter after chapter after chapter. What I mean by meditation is, I mean you're like taking one verse or two verses, and you just spend 15 minutes just reading it over and over and over, soaking in every word, soaking in every phrase, letting it speak to every aspect of your spirit, asking the spirit to guide you as you listen and the process, and it's a totally different exercise. But here's the deal. When you engage in meditation, what will happen is through time, the next time somebody offends you or sins against you, some of those passages that you meditated on will come to mind in the moment of offense, and it will allow you to move to a different place than how you might have responded six months ago. That's what and I could spend a whole week talking about meditation and what that looks like and how to do that. But these are one of those spiritual disciplines that for thousands of years, God's people have engaged in to grow spiritually. Number two, prayer. Again, we could talk all about prayer, weeks on prayer, what it looks like and how you should do it. But in the end, it is going before God and acknowledging that if we're going to get an answer in this, it's going to be from Him. That prayer is that moment when we begin to recognize, I will not, all be, I will not be able to fix this whole thing on my own. I will not be able to resolve this on my own. I am in need to, of this creator God. I mean, and so prayer is this conversation where instead of responding in anger, I'm going to talk to Him. And so if you're angry with me, you should talk to Him first. <laughs> all right, we'll just have better perspective in it. And prayer is one of those things that when you engage in, and so here's what I'd say. I mean, don't, don't let it be a big legalistic thing, but tomorrow morning, you should intend to pray. And for some, that might be uh, on your drive to work rather than listening to the radio. You should spend that time in prayer, and that'd be fantastic. If you would commit to doing that, intend to doing that, you will move further along in the process of spiritual transformation. I mean, you just will. And, and you'll get to learn just by trial and error what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Because I've got so many things that I've tried in my life that just didn't work. I'm just not my, not my, like some of you, you pray really good at night, right? Like you're going to bed and you pray at night. Some of that works really well. Not me. As soon as I get in bed, I'll, dear Jesus, thank you. And I'm just out. It doesn't work for me. And then I'll wake up at three in the morning and be like, uh, Jesus, name him in. You know, I mean, just, I don't, and you'll learn, you'll just get it. Another one is fasting. See, that's a powerful discipline. It is denying ourselves food and in the moment letting it be an aching and a craving not only for food, but in that to let it transcend food to God himself. And whatever time we would have invested in eating a meal, we invest in speaking to God. And I'm telling you, fasting is powerful because whatever is inside of you will come out in the midst of fasting. It just will. See, some of you, when you don't eat, like if it's, spiritual, it's a spiritual exercise and you go a whole day without eating, you might find that you're irritable and cranky and angry. Fasting is not making you irritable, cranky, and angry. You are irritable, cranky, and angry, and fasting is bringing that out. 
And that is a mercy from God. Honestly. It is a grace from God that he allows us glimpses to see who we really are. Because then we get to bring that to him and say, oh, that really is who I am. And I really am like that. But my experience is when Jesus talks about fasting, he just assumes we're doing it. He doesn't talk about the hows or the when, because he just assumes we're doing it. But my experience in the Christian church is, oh, nobody ever fasts. Like, at least spiritually. I mean, this isn't about, like, losing weight. This is about, no, like, a spiritual fast from food. And you could use others. It doesn't have to be food. It could be something else. But in it, I think if you'll engage in, in, I'm not saying, like, hey, three times a week you should fast. But, I mean, once a month, once a quarter. I mean, whatever you want to start with, begin to see if in doing it. So, really, the next time you think that you're receiving less than and being denied something and want to get angry, See, when you exercise fasting for a period of time, it will teach you, you you could be denied and you'll be all right. Because there might be a time coming in your life when you get this diagnosis where fasting will be the thing that will allow you to respond like Jesus because it prepared you for years in advance. And we want that. So that our inner being reflects his inner being. Study. Bible study is another one. And let me tell you, we are living at a day and age that is unlike any other. We have available to us now more so than any time in history commentaries, podcasts, sermons, on, I mean, we live in an amazing world that gives to us the avenue of learning uh, in terms of biblical study. Now, the second category, that was the inward disciplines. The second is the outward disciplines are things like simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. Simplicity is a big one. Because some of you, like any, Little League start for anyone this week? Yeah, how's that going for your family? I mean, you got to be... I'm on the phone with Kelly. Where do I need to be? At what time? At what? I mean, we're trying to plop, right? And we move at 100 miles per hour, and in the midst of it, I can't hear a voice from the Lord even if I wanted to because I don't have time to hear. I mean, simplicity might be for us cutting out those things that are excess so that we can slow down and hear from the Lord. Or it could be other things like you have 300 outfits in your closet and you're paralyzed every morning just looking at it. Well, simplify. Cut it down to 25. And know that if you kept 25, you are by far one of the richest in the world because you have 25. Now I'm moving on. Solitude. That's a powerful one for me because I'm extroverted. See, some of you introverts, you're like, oh, solitude, finally. <laughs> Out of all the disciplines, yes, I'm going to be by myself. Uh, if you're extroverted off the charts like me, then solitude is painful. <laughs> it's like, is there anyone around here? Hello. <laughs> I don't like being by myself. But here's what I've discovered. I have been able to use as a defensive mechanism to seeing true growth in my life being around everybody all the time, being overly extroverted, being engaged with people, talking to people. I mean, I can talk, talk, talk. I mean, next thing you know. But it's when I cut all that off and force myself to go into solitude that I can be quiet and finally hear from the Lord about me or about others. About other, I, mean, the, I mean, so solitude has been essential that even though it doesn't come naturally for me, I have to train myself to enter into those moments of solitude because in it, it allows me to advance into spiritual growth. Other issues will be submission. And this is a good one. It could be your boss who you think is an idiot. Hello, anyone? Come on now. We're talking real. Just the exercise of submitting at times to your boss, even when you know he's wrong, will be good for you spiritually. And it's, I mean, I think wives, it's the husbands all the time. <laughs> I mean, the act of submission is this ability to say, I don't have to be right. I don't have to be number one. I don't have to get my way. And it will allow us to look more like Jesus. And so just act of submission at times, will be, that'll be a good thing for us. Service, I tell you, service is huge. Because when you start serving people, you know who you quickly forget about? You forget about yourself. And you might have entered it all depressed and discouraged, and your life is this, and I'm not that. I mean, that's why when people go to foreign do like mission work on a third, in a third world country and come back, they got a totally different perspective. I mean, they don't even flush the toilet without appreciating it. 
The rest of it, we just take it for granted. I mean, and so this is what happens when we just serve. It leads us to look more like Jesus, who he said himself, I came to serve. That's what I'm all about. The, four, the third category is the corporate disciplines. And these are ones that we engage with one another. Things like confession. And let me tell you, if you've got something in your life, a sin in your life, and you're holding it secret, that itself will be a, a burden to you. Just the secrecy is bondage for you. And there has been nothing more freeing than when you finally are in front of another brother in Christ or if you're in front of a sister in Christ and you just confess, hey, this is going on in my life or I'm struggling with this or I need your prayers. To hear back in the face of somebody else who loves you and loves God to say, you are forgiven and then to encourage you and to pray for you could be a moment where you find freedom and transformation that you have never experienced before. I mean, I've experienced it in my own life. Number two, worship. Some of my greatest moments of repentance have been in the context of worship. And it's just like God is present, the Spirit is present, and I know this is on in my life. And when the Spirit shows up in that way, it just there it goes. I mean, just repentance follows. The third is guidance. And I know I'm going fast. We could spend a whole week on each one of these topics. Maybe someday we will. But uh, guidance is another one. We would know this in any other area of our life. If you want to take guitar lessons, what would you do? After you buy your guitar, I mean, what would you, what would you do next? You would probably find somebody who could teach and instruct you on how to play the guitar. You don't know. How should you know? Why would you know? You need to find somebody. They've already got it down. They know exactly what it's like to play, how to play, hold the guitar, how to play the chords, how to move, I mean, how to strum, all that stuff. The same thing is true in the spiritual life. There is no shame in finding somebody who might have been at this Jesus thing longer than you and to go to them for guidance in regards to particular life issues or where you're at or just to ask questions of, could you help me grow like you've grown in Christ's likeness? It's called guidance. And the fourth thing, an important thing, is just celebration because there's life in the kingdom. And life in the kingdom is full of joy and peace and goodness and mercy and grace. And that should lead us to whoo-hoo because anytime you get a group of people together who are following Jesus and they're like, oh, gloom, despair. And I mean, that's, just, that's not the kingdom life. So just getting together to celebrate is a good thing. Those would be uh, Richard Foster. These are the ones that he offers in terms of spiritual disciplines. And it's not exhaustive. You might have other things that you're doing. Your like, Can I tell you another one that's in my life? Journaling. Journaling in my life has been a very powerful tool to measure where I'm at spiritually. I'm able to go back and say, the same thing happened six months ago, and today I handle it totally differently than I did six months ago. Or I'm allowed to say in the moment, I totally blew this moment, and I was selfish in this way, and I kind of deal with that before the Lord. That's just spiritual journaling. Not like, hey, so-and-so said this to me, and I said that, and I did that. I mean, like spiritual journaling where you're trying to evaluate, how am I doing in terms of following after Jesus? And so there are lots of different things. But in that, here's what happens. These, and I'm closing with this. We'll be done here in a second. These disciplines are a means of grace from God. And this is important. They are, they are avenues and paths by which we receive God's grace. But it's all about God's grace. And this is why this is important. When you practice the spiritual disciplines, God does not go, wow, that is so impressive. We're not impressing God by this. Nor are we earning anything from God by doing these things. We do not gain approval from God. He already, he already loves you and He already approves of you. And born out of that is that grace then to move forward. Because there's a tendency, I, I see this all the time, sure, if you start exercising the spiritual disciplines, like one day you could be driving your car and you'd be like, man, I really pray a lot. And you start to be real satisfied with your prayer life and then you start looking around and you start to, I bet they don't pray as much as I do. I mean, I'm like, I pray every day for like an hour. I bet, I bet they don't even 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden there's supposed to be this, pride that comes into you, and arrogance, and it becomes legalistic, and you begin to put what's on you, on everybody. Listen, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, we are all in different places, we all have different journeys, and what I have adopted in my life might not be what you should adopt. 
and telling you how much I pray a day will be totally unhelpful to you because you'll either have one or two responses. You'll either go, well, what do we listen to that guy for? He only prays that often. Or you'll, be, or you'll put me on some pedestal I don't belong in. This is between you and the Lord as you kind of walk forward in terms of disciplines. But there are avenues of God's grace, not something that we should be proud of ourselves on and think more highly of ourselves than we should through pride or legalism. But this is the way God made us. He made us with thoughts. And out of those thoughts come feelings. And each one of us has a will, like our spirit or our heart. And we have a body. And we have social relations. And we have a soul. And it is the spiritual disciplines that address every one of those categories. And that's why I would commend to you this morning, if you really have a vision for following after Jesus in the kingdom of God, and you really want to, intent to decide to follow after Jesus, then I would encourage you to adopt the means, which are the spiritual disciplines. That is what Jesus did in his life, and what he calls us to, to move forward. But in it, you need to know this. Change in your life really is possible. Seeing real spiritual transformation does not have to be for us some mystical cross-our-fingers proposition and hope it works out. But with real vision, real intention, and real means, we can do it. And as we do, be patient with yourself and gracious with yourself just as God is. What that means is if you intend to pray tomorrow and then you get busy and you don't pray tomorrow, don't beat yourself up. Be as gracious to you as God is to you and then do it again the day after. But could you imagine what would happen in our community? I mean, just think about the south side of South. What would happen in our community if a group of people who came together at 718 East Dahmer Avenue had their inner being replaced with the inner being of Jesus? Imagine what would happen in our marriages, or in our homes, or our schools, or our workplaces, if just the hundreds of people who call Livingstone's church home would be sent out back into our community through vision, intention, and means, who have learned how to react and respond as Jesus would on a routine basis and very easily. I think what we'd see is revolution. And then change would not even be just about you and your life, but through you, change for the world. Because it too is dying for change, longing for it, revolutionary change that really is only possible through agents of the God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would allow us to be those agents of change, not only in our own life, but in the world around us. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with all the things that we need, both vision and intention, Lord, but also means to take our next step, that we don't want to be the same tomorrow. We want to leave out of here different than even how we came in. Even if it's just by a small measure, but we want to keep taking steps closer to the likeness of your son, Jesus. And so we say to you, you are fully welcome into our lives and into our hearts. We fully surrender and yield to you. We desire to give our lives to you in such a way that you are allowed then to transform and change us from one degree of glory to another into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We pray this for his sake and for your glory. In his name, amen. Right now, we're going to take up our tithes and offerings.